From the University of Groningen, this is Mindwise Podcast, hosted and brought to you by psychology students. Welcome, I'm Josh. And I'm Anja. And we are joined today by Miriam Lommen. She is one of our faculty's newest researchers who recently arrived from Oxford. Her research interests are broad and relate to post-traumatic stress disorder and anxiety disorders. Okay, so uh, welcome Miriam. Uh, would you Thank tell you. us who you are? Would you introduce yourself? Sure. So I'm Miriam Lomman. Uh, I just started working here at the faculty uh, uh, in August. So I'm quite new to everything, although it feels like I've been here for a longer time. <laughs> um, I'm originally from Tilburg. And then I studied in Maastricht University, went did my PhD in Utrecht University, then went to Oxford, that's why I've been living last two and a half years, and then I came here for, um, well, to take up a position here as an assistant professor with a tenure track. So since then I'm here. So how did you get here? Why Groningen? As I said, I was working as a postdoc in Oxford, and I really loved it. It was a really nice place to be, I had a really nice life there, and I had a really nice research position here. But it, it's always temporary, and I knew there would be coming an end to it, and I could stay another year, um, but um, at the same time I knew my position would be very... Yeah, it wasn't really clear whether I could stay longer, and the comp competition there is really, really high. I can imagine that, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um, the opportunity to stay there is just really low. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to find a permanent job there. Yeah. And I think, um, so I also have a background of, as a clinical psychologist, or I would say cognitive behavioural therapist, actually. Okay. But um, that's of less, it's less, um, well, less worth in the UK because um, I think lots of people don't really uh, recognize the Dutch license I've got <laughs> like a Dutch registration okay. so although I did work there in clinical practice it mm. wasn't they didn't really see it as something that would help me or stand out of like all those researchers there and yeah. I think here in the Netherlands people appreciate it better and I could really use those mm. skills more in my current job for example yeah. So when I saw this position coming up and I was a tenure track, I thought, wow, this is a great opportunity. It really fits with my interests in both mm. experimental research and clinical research. So, yeah, I thought this is where I can mm. combine all the things I like, like teaching and doing research and also doing my clinical work. Very nice. So you're kind of a research practitioner, so it was important for exactly. you. It was an important part in the decision that you can work as a researcher, but also apply kind of what you're researching on. Yeah, That's exactly. Nice. Yeah. Uh, so you're new to the faculty. What is your mm. first impression? How do you like it? I like it a lot. I mean, I think the atmosphere is really nice. Mm. Uh, people are very, very friendly and all very collaborative. And I think that's not something you can you see everywhere so I just always prefer to collaborate rather than compete <laughs> because I think it helps everybody it's much much nicer if uh, everybody collaborates than just competing although of course you have to compete as well but yeah. um, healthy competition but still exactly yeah. and I think the system here because most people have their own tenure track yeah. you're not competing against each other you're just having your own track and you know you can both benefit from collaborations and people are just generally 
genuinely interested in you know other people's research and yeah I, I think that's just very nice atmosphere yeah, yeah. No, nice so how do you like the city then very good. <laughs> I really like it a lot actually um so I didn't really know Groningen okay I've been here just for the interview <laughs> really but you're from the Netherlands that's quite yes. weird isn't it well I've been here probably three times in my life okay wow. so I'm more from the south and I remember that my current husband and I uh, went here probably seven or eight years ago on a weekend and it was rainy I just remember it was really rainy and everything was closed on Sunday so we went bar hopping and I just know I got quite drunk and so it was a good went. day after all <laughs> so it was really good we played air hockey and <laughs> played laser quest with just two of us <laughs> so it was good fun but I and we just went there for the museum so we're both really interested in museums oh, nice. so I've been there I think once or twice while we were living in Maastricht actually yeah. at the time and we just make a day trip we'd go there it was like four hour train ride and we'd go to the museum and then go back I do love the atmosphere of Groningen as well yeah. it's nice that it's a student city there's lots to do it's yeah. very lively and lots of nice cafes and bars and restaurants and just places to go to if you, you know, just want to go to the city so yeah I really do well, like really it nice. you sound very social like especially for like the stereotypical researcher you know you picture someone yeah. sitting in the lab with a lot of rats but like oh, actually no okay <laughs> <laughs> I think that's one of my I mean yes I do love my research and I work a lot but um I think what what I aspire is that I have a rich social life next to it and I think I really need it as well um, <laughs> yeah I really enjoy that part as well nice yeah especially considering that you haven't been here for very long like you sound like you've had no. a good look around already though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's right yeah yeah I try not to sleep too much <laughs> and then fit it all in in my life yeah <laughs> are you happy to be back in the Netherlands too I mean was that a part of the decision to come here um Yes, well, I kind of applied also in Canada at the same time, and mm. I was quite happy to go to Canada as well. Um, so, but it was just more that when I was here at the interview, it just felt as you know, like such a good match that I was immediately sold. I thought, yeah, <laughs> this is it. I could totally see myself. I went actually to this place. It's called by Britta. It's a mm. new place where you can eat cakes and they yeah, make yeah, it. Yeah, no, it. it's close to the UB, isn't it? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And after the interview, I felt like, oh, it went pretty well. Just, you know, before I get on the train back and on the plane back, I'll just go and treat myself. So I was eating some cake there and just sitting there and observing, you know, everybody was cycling by and walking by. And I really felt like I could live here. Yeah. I could totally see my life there. And that's, I think that was just a good feeling. And I just went with it. So we hope you're here to stay then. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Yeah, I think you never know what life brings and it's just all about grabbing opportunities and this felt like a great opportunity and it feels still feels like a great opportunity. So uh, I never really planned further than five years, I had to be honest. Um, but I, I could see myself here for, a, yeah, for definitely a longer time. That's yeah, that's the aim now. Hear, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> great. Uh, so what led you to pursue Korean research? That is funny. I don't really know the answer to it in that sense that I wasn't a student who really always loved research. Mm -hmm. um, I actually thought 
that when I was a bachelor student, I thought research would be so boring. <laughs> so I said, I'm definitely not going into research. And my sister was actually, she's five years old and she started her PhD. And I thought, oh, that's so boring. <laughs> <laughs> but then I did my first own research as a bachelor student. And I just wanted to set up my own research because I thought it would be much more interesting. And I loved it so much. Really? What was it about? It was a... Uh, to, uh, to, well, in tsunami survivors in Sri Lanka, oh. so when to go and see what whether they also meet criteria for PTSD. Mm-hmm. After it was one and a half year after the tsunami, and we went to interview people actually got affected by the tsunami. By, for example, all people lost their house, or some even lost their children or family members. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to see whether our Western concept of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and the models that we have, like what kind of cognitions are related to um, symptomatology, whether that would apply to a non-Western country as well. So we did lots of interviews there. And I found it really, really interesting. And not only doing interviews, but also the data, just... You know, if you you got the data, mm. is to work on it and find out what you know what the results are. I thought I found it really really exciting, and I thought I never knew that research could be mm. so interesting. And I think I my interest just spread, so I start being interested in more projects and more kind of topics. And I'm still very, um, you know, I'm still really fascinated by trauma and post traumatic stress disorder, but it has kind of um, broadened well yeah to uh, more fear learning and anxiety disorders in general um so but i think for my master's i I stayed in research on the in the field of trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder now it's psychotic patients and i just loved it again and that's when i decided you know maybe i should do something with it so what did you find about um ptsd is it really is it just a western concept or does it really also apply to people in sri lanka or something else well it does i did find that quite a lot of people meet the criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder Mm -hmm. um in sri lanka so i think it's not just a western concept although i do believe that it might be influenced slightly like Mm -hmm. the kind of symptoms people experience um, some kind of cultural backgrounds might, um, ex- you know, more express their stress reactions in physical symptoms, for example, um, rather than psychological symptoms. But there's a lot of variety, of course, also within cultures. So I guess within, between individuals. And I think it definitely exists in different cultures as well. And the funny thing, well, at least I concluded what I concluded from my study is that these kind of cognitions that we have that that we know in the Western world are related um, to post-traumatic stress disorder or the development of post-traumatic stress disorder were also related in these non-Western samples to post-traumatic stress disorder and that was just a correlation so uh, but still that we still find the same correlation and I thought that's really interesting and maybe you know we could add uh, different thoughts that would also relate uh, for this particular group to post-traumatic stress disorder but it seemed to be quite general a general thing mm-hmm. and not that culture bound or specific speaking about idols um, yeah. does anybody come to mind? that is so funny um, it sounds really weird but no <laughs> <laughs> it's just I think there's lots of people 
that I've learned from a lot. Um, so I think there's lots of bits and pieces I take from everybody. Mm-hmm. But I don't feel there's one person that has it all or it's just like, <laughs> exactly. I feel like, oh, this is perfect. I want to, you know, follow that or really I admire in that sense, like as a as a whole. It's, I mean, I, I admire a lot of people, but usually for different kinds of reasons. And yeah, but not really one, not altogether one person, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So what would you say is your role at the faculty now? You only just arrived, but how would you describe your role at the faculty? I think I'm still kind of searching for exactly my role. Um, so I've got a role as teacher, as a lecturer, but also more as a um, a bit of a like a supervisor to students as well. Uh, and to I really love to teach them the skills of doing research, but also more to help them out with the clinical internships and things they see or they you know they've got problems with um but also a role as a um as a researcher um not related to students but just doing my own research setting up my own line of research and as a clinician and i haven't started seeing patients here yet but uh, i will soon start that as well so i think i've got these different roles and i <laughs> i kind of like to have those different roles as well and have the combination i think yeah it really suits me so uh where are you teaching how are you teaching which courses do you teach so i started coordinating this course on psychopathology mm-hmm. so it's more about the dsm so what kind of disorders exist what kind of psychological disorders exist and what are the criteria mm-hmm. to meet those uh, disorder, uh to get those or uh, how you say that to get diagnosis for yeah. these disorders and but also to get a feeling for it. So what? how does it look like? What does it mean if you have that? Something like that. So that's why I'm coordinating. Um, now uh, I will be coordinating next year um, Introduction to Cognitive mm-hmm. Behavioural Therapies. Mm-hmm. So that's more the oh, follow-up nice. on this one. Yeah. Uh, and I've been teaching the clinical skills training, the Dutch one. Um, so that has been quite uh, intense, like six hours a week, but really good fun. I'm <laughs> taking over some of the coordination of the internships as well. Oh, nice. So I'm supervising, but also um, doing the coordination a little bit, helping Ellen out actually. Nice. Yeah. So most of our listeners will maybe like see you as a uh, lecturer. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So how does normal workday look like for you? Um, well, recently it has been quite hectic. <laughs> Um, so my diary looked, you know, it was completely filled from nine till five for the oh appointments. No. But now, um, so some of the courses have finished now. So slightly, I've got a few hours like where I can just work on an article or something like that. But recently, I've been teaching a lot. Um, that means, and I wanted to go to the lectures for my own course that I'm coordinating as well. So I would just. Um, run around a lot so people I think a lot of people have been seeing <laughs> seeing me running around and um, I'll just go to different you know lectures and uh, prepare lectures and see a lot of students and um, if I you know I just walk around and just also trying to catch up with people at the same time and making go for lunch sometimes and you know see what kind of opportunities there are of collaboration and um, yeah Nice. Is there already someone you're working with or like that you're looking to close to work? <laughs> well, I've actually uh, started, uh, I joined a project of Mike and Alta, 
So she asked me to be involved in this um, big grant application. So we've been working, well, we've been Skyping while I was still at, in Oxford. And I've got some collaborations with other people and also thinking of brainstorming with some of uh, them I'm still in the brainstorming phase and others I already have some projects with. Um, and I've started a project with a former colleague of mine who also who is a postdoc now in at uh, Utrecht University. So yeah, lots of collaborations going on and starting. Is there anyone you would like to work with in the future? Anyone in particular? Uh, lots of people again. I can't really come up with one name again. Maybe that's a bit of the idol thing. I want to work with everybody really. <laughs> and I think you want it all. That, exactly. There's so many interesting people and so many interesting projects. Um, and I think that's quite typical for me as well. I, I'm not that specialised in one thing only. I'm quite interested in lots of things. Um, so that also makes it I um, might not be that focused on one particular person. Having said that, if you had to pick one favourite aspect of your new job, would that be the teaching, which you sounded very enthusiastic about, or maybe something else? I think else? it's a combination. Yeah, I think if I would only do the teaching, I, w I wouldn't be that happy with it uh, because I would definitely miss the research and I would definitely miss the clinical work. So it is really the combination that makes it, well, it makes it feel like the perfect job. Okay. Are those things you were hoping for before coming to Groningen? Yeah, definitely. That was one of the reasons I applied for this job, that I could do the combination and uh, make use of all those skills and like develop those skills all of them further and I think they work really well together uh, so it's great to have that combination again in this job. Would you maybe give us an overview of your research topics at the moment? Yeah sure so um, lots of research I do is actually focusing on individual differences for example in vulnerability for post-traumatic stress disorder, but also anxiety disorders in general. So why do some people develop an anxiety disorder, whereas other people might not? And we know lots of people do. And again, also for example, with post-traumatic stress disorder, most people will experience a traumatic event in their lifetime. It's almost, I think the numbers say something like 90 or 95% will ever in their lifetime experience a traumatic event and it's only like in general maybe eight or nine percent of those people that will exp you know develop a post-traumatic uh, post stress disorder so i'm just fascinated by the question like who are those people what makes them vulnerable to not recover naturally from such a extreme uh extremely negative event or traumatic event and I think in my research I do I combine like really experimental fundamental research in the lab where I look at how do people actually develop an anxiety and how can we unlearn an anxiety as well and I try to figure out relationships and what kind of processes are involved but I also like to focus on the interventions and see like how can we help those people to unlearn fear again mm -hmm. and I know I, I use anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder in the same sentence and I think is that's um well that has changed now because post-traumatic stress disorder is no longer officially <laughs> with the DSM-5 um an anxiety disorder but I think the same kind of mechanisms are involved so you could see it as 
um, you can understand post-traumatic stress disorder from a fear learning perspective as well and I think that you know that that's a model I like to use to understand the development of anxiety but also how how we can get rid of it again yeah. at least the anxieties that we we're not happy with and are causing our pro as problems in life yeah. uh, could you just give us a short overview about what PTSD actually is so like what are the main symptoms and how do you classify it yeah sure absolutely so um, again with DSM-5 you've got well it has changed a little bit but um, it's characterized by uh, four symptom clusters so the first one is intrusions or re-experiencing symptoms so that means people actually kind of um, re-experiencing the traumatic event and it could be in um, distressing thoughts that come up while you don't want to think about it or um, uh, well it could be like in nightmares for example um, then you've got this second cluster and I think that's one of the actually new clusters so you've got the negative beliefs mm -hmm. and that's related to um, um, to the well negative beliefs about the traumatic event but also the consequences of it and then you've got this cluster where um, uh, it's about avoidance so people avoid actually everything that reminds them of the traumatic event because they find it really hard to deal with it and then you've got hyper arousal cluster where um, you've got all these symptoms where you feel like the body, um, I think most is related to the body actually, so it's just in a, in a state of alertness. So um, people, they've got show a starter response to loud noises for example, they find it very difficult to concentrate and those kind of symptoms. Would you say there are predispositions um, that make people be more likely to get PTSD or is it more about the event that might have happened to them, the traumatic event? It's both and I do believe there we can make, you know, we can further our knowledge and it's very interesting to further our knowledge in um, who are vulnerable and can we actually, sh you know, already trying to um, focus on those people who are vulnerable to develop an, uh, post, uh, to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. But there, we can't forget that there is a lot about the event itself. So um, there's also, I think I'm a bit, um, not negative, but I think it's quite realistic to realize that we will never be able to really you know, pick those people out and say they're definitely going to develop a disorder because there's so many factors involved uh, and this is always in psychology of course but there's also so much about the traumatic event itself that we can never you know be f be sure about those people are going definitely going to develop post-traumatic stress disorder or uh, problems after um, being exposed to a traumatic event it's good to to f you know to um, I think it would be good to trying to understand like who is vulnerable and focus on those people but I think we have to be very careful with it as well because it, there is an effect of labeling and the effect of labeling people as being vulnerable in itself can have a major negative effect on those people um, so I think we have to be careful with that as well so I like to focus on on processes that you can influence actually and one of the processes that we know that or one of the maybe even traits that we know that that is associated with vulnerability to post-traumatic stress disorder is neuroticism and that's quite a vague or well, quite a vague thing I mean it's a, just being most people who score high neuroticism 
are actually uh, just experiencing already a bit more stress during, during normal life and they have more negative feelings in general. So it might not be that they're more re reactive towards an event, but they just start off higher on, on the, on, on the, if you look at the levels, the symptom level. So that means they hit the, well, the criteria for, uh, or the, uh, the limit for, um, post-traumatic stress disorder just earlier on they just need a little boost and then they're already there whether people are not experiencing symptoms already they might need to develop lots of symptoms before they meet the criteria for PTSD so it is a it is a um, vulnerability factor in that sense but um, yeah that is, so that's one of those I think neuroticism but in one of my studies in soldiers I showed that people are in general um, so people are in general slow in unlearning a fear which is not even related to specific the tra specific traumatic event but just in general who are slower in unlearning a fear might be actually or are more vulnerable to develop post-traumatic stress disorder once they experience a traumatic event so this is what I found in soldiers who were sent to Afghanistan and even if you control for already symptoms that are already there so that seemed to be really well vulnerability factor yeah. mm. um, I also saw in one of your articles I think that is also making um, measuring PTSD a lot more difficult because um, some some of the I already read some of that mm -hmm. but maybe you can give us an overview um, so that some of the scales that you use if you use them before and after I mean uh, you can't really analyze them in a way yeah. that they usually analyze right exactly that's really a statistical point uh, um, that we made in that paper and I guess we often assume that the questionnaires that we use if we use them repeatedly um, that we can just compare the results over time um, well actually from a statistical viewpoint you, sh you should test whether uh, the construct that you are measuring is actually the same at all those time points and what I've found is that if you um, if you use a prospective design where for example in our case we had a post-traumatic stress disorder measure um, if you use that before and after trauma the before trauma assessment is just measuring a different kind of construct so you can't directly compare it because you can't you're kind of not measuring the same thing mm. um, which doesn't mean that it's it's not helpful because it is still it, you know their score before even though it's a different construct still uh, before deployment in this our case did predict um symptoms after deployment so it's very valuable but you have to be really careful with saying um that is the same construct you're measuring so that's basically yeah the main point of that article okay. Thank yeah, I, I just really like the articles. So. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. It's really good to hear. Thanks. <laughs> Would you say that people are likely to maybe even lie about maybe their symptoms or their diagnosis once they have one of PTSD? Um, I think it really depends on the situation. So, in our case, there was nothing to gain. So, for example, in our research, we were independent and we weren't allowed to. Um, well to do anything with the individual results so people don't I think people are really honest about things with us um, sometimes they might be shy or to be ashamed of of things so that might be a reason why 
they might underreport some things, for example, especially in you know the soldier thing. They're quite they're all very it's a bit of a tough culture, right? So, but I felt like they they they've also felt they could be really honest with us. Um, but I think in different cultures, and especially like in America, where there's a this really claim culture, right, where people put in, put in a lot of claims, um, there is a financial benefit sometimes if you do meet criteria for PTSD, for example, after deployment. If you do have problems, for example, but they don't they don't really you don't really fit one of the diagnoses. Maybe you miss out on a lot of money. So in that case, I think people, you know do malinger uh, in order to get this financial benefit but I think that's you know that's the case there's always the case people can malinger of course it's, it's quite easy to do I'm sure you can train somebody to say like what kind of ex- symptoms they experience they could look it up on the internet and come up with that story those stories or those symptoms in an interview and you wouldn't be you wouldn't know when somebody is lying or not if they are well prepared to come up, can come up with examples and you will just meet criteria for PTSD or another any other kind of disorder but I think apart from financial benefit in case you know I don't know if you need money or if there's possibility to get a lot of money I think there's no benefit of having a diagnosis so I think apart from those kind of particular situations yeah I wouldn't know why there would be a reason for people to lie about things. How would you go about detecting these kind of cases though? I think it's really hard. I think there's lots of statements and lots of people have said that they can actually know when people are lying and I think we know that lots of those you know, techniques that has, have been used just don't work and it's still easy to malinger um, and or you, you know if people really want to lie, they lie, and if you, they're good enough at it, I don't think you, it's easy to know when somebody's lying or not. And maybe there are subtle differences, but again, like sometimes in research, we, we're talking about groups, right? And it doesn't mean that you can always bring it back and use it to to in individual cases. And I think that's one of the mistakes that's often you know that has happened quite often that we take these group results and apply it to individuals yeah that's again the issue of labeling that you just you know just label yeah. someone it doesn't always fit you just still have an individual yeah. exactly exactly um so what would you consider your most important research findings so far I think it's one of extinction learning, which I say like unlearning how individual differences in unlearning of fear are predictive of a developing post-traumatic stress disorder. So that is a vulnerability factor to post-traumatic stress disorder. You mentioned um, the competitive environment in Oxford and that it is yes. different across countries or also universities. Yes. Yes. Um, how would you describe like research today in general? Like, Has it changed over the years? I think, I mean, I haven't been in research that long, but what I hear from other people as well is that it has changed, especially there's more um, there's more pressure to get grants in. And while at the same time, it's the competition is much, much higher. So I think it's a bit of a shame that lots of people, once you get higher up, um, you spend more and more time on writing grants uh, while the success rate is actually lower. So I think that's that has changed, and I think I can see it a little bit 
as well like I was a student and I think I mean I did really well but um I guess these days you have to um show that you're already really good at a really early stage I was still finding out what I really like to do and luckily it worked out well for me but I mean these days I feel like um if you want to do a PhD, you have to make sure you do, you've done the research master, not normal master. So I, I still did like the regular master. And I was actually the first in Maastricht, at least. I had the option. It was the first time that I could have the option to do the research master. But I wanted to do my clinical internship as well. So I chose the regular master. And people have been asking me why I didn't do the research master. And I, I find it's becoming more and more... People have to prove themselves early on and immediately you know be going for academic career uh, at a very early stage and I found it quite difficult because at least for me I didn't know at that time point that I really want to go on in research mm -hmm. so I think it was just in time for <laughs> you know just go with the flow and see where have I end up. Do you feel a lot of this uh, like pressure about getting grants and maybe even get published um, in your day-to-day -day life does it influence you? Um, I'll try not to get too influenced by it. I know there is this pressure, definitely. You can feel that, you know, you know you have to publish and keep publishing. But I am I think I'm quite good at not worrying too much about it. And I feel like I do the best I can. And more than that, I can't do. And as I said, I still want to have a social life next to it, for example, and just spend some time with my husband. And... Um, I don't want to give up those things and if I would need to give up those things in order to publish enough or to get bronze in I think it's not worth it for me uh, well I'm very happy to work hard for it and I just see you know I just do what I can and I just hope that's good enough okay nice it appears to be <laughs> yeah <laughs> so far it does yeah <laughs> uh, so what would you advise uh, a student who wants to go into research as an aspiring researcher yeah so I think I've got a few advices <laughs> on them. I want to hear all of them. So first of all, follow your heart. Okay. Because there's lots of ways people say, like, you, you have to do this because you can. Mm -hmm. But I don't think, you know, that's not going to make you happy. Mm -hmm. um, I think you can only do this if you really, truly love it. Mm -hmm. And do it because you love it, not because people think you should do this. Mm -hmm. Um, and if you do what you love, you like to spend a lot of time on it and you just like to invest in it. And um, and it, as I said, otherwise you're just going to be very unhappy, I guess. Um, and I think the other thing I can say is that um, you have to learn to want well, to take rejection, not personally. Because there's going to be a lot of rejection mm. and sometimes, um, you know, the nice things about like getting a publication out is a long process. So you will see this, you don't immediately get uh, the gratification from it. Um, so and you do get a lot of rejections in the, at the same time. So if you take that personal, I think that's going to make your life very hard. Mm. And I've also heard that from people who are really high up also in Oxford I've, they've been telling me and I think it's so true it's not the people that are most brilliant that make it in science it's the people who can who know how to deal with this rejection <laughs> and keep on going and keep being positive and just you know just go on um and I think 
I would say always collaborate uh, instead of competing. Thank you. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Is there anything else that you would like to talk about? I just want to thank you for giving me this opportunity. <laughs> and it's great to, you know, I love to, to listen to the other podcasts and I hope people find it interesting to listen to this one as well. I'm sure they will. <laughs> thank you so much for your time.